definitely a political statement. I am not close enough to French politics to say whether it's real. But my overall sense is these proposals to tax global internet companies, you know, they've been mooted extensively. There aren't any big ones yet, but I think some significant country is going to adopt one at some point, and it wouldn't surprise me if France is the first. I just, I'm sorry, you didn't mention it, Brian, but I just have to say, I also am hearing and seeing in my mind the face and the words of Stuart Baker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just feel like the listening audience should just at this point pause, reflect, and imagine Stuart making a number of cynical uh, and harsh comments about the French. Yes, the, the yeah. French, the EU, and uh, data privacy, three of his right. favorite topics. And David, in Stuart's absence, I probably should have tried to channel him more as the primary <laughs> commenter on this, but it's almost impossible for me to do so. Stuart is a unique, uh, unique entity. Welcome to episode 254 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, today, Maury Schenk, who's an advisor to Steptoe & Johnson on European technology and cybersecurity issues in our London office, will interview James Griffiths, the journalist and author of the new book, The Great Firewall of China, How to Build and Control an Alternative Version of the Internet. Joining me for the news roundup, in addition to Maury, is David Chris, uh, and many of you uh, know David well. David's a co-founder of the strategic consulting firm Culper Partners, and he's formerly the assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. And I'm Brian Egan. I'm a partner with Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, D.C., and I'm formerly the legal advisor to the State Department and the National Security Council. Uh, notoriously absent from today's program is Stuart Baker, who is off the grid, at least supposedly, in the wilds of the Grand Canyon for a few days. And before we get going, I just want to give our normal disclaimer, which is the views that we express in this podcast do not reflect the opinions of our law firm, Steptoe & Johnson, or its clients, uh, or Culper Partners, or its clients in these areas. With that, we'll begin with a story that really may or may not be news uh, related to the NSA's long-running and much maligned program at this point for accessing telephone records metadata under Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act. Uh, now, last week on the Lawfare podcast across town, uh, Luke Murray, who is the National Security Advisor to House Minority Leader McCarthy, uh, made news, perhaps inadvertently, uh, when he reported that the NSA hasn't been using the telephone uh, metadata program for several months. And this led uh, to a flurry of stories to the NSA director, uh, General Paul Nakasone, to acknowledge in an inter interview at the RSA conference last week uh, that the NSA is, quote, in a deliberative process over the future of this program. Presumably, the broader Trump administration is also part of that deliberative process. So, David, you've been engaged in the debate on the Section 215 program, the telephone records program or call detail record program for several years. From your perspective, what should we make of last week's developments other than maybe the poor staffer to McCarthy probably wishes he never made that statement? Does any of what has happened come as a surprise to you over the last week? Not really over the last week. I think there are sort of two contexts in which to view these developments. First, of course, we've had a major breakdown in a non-trivial collection program. Last summer, the NSA announced that it was purging all of the USA Freedom Act called Detail Record Collection. That's from 2015 to 2018. 
So it's a, it's a big breakdown in a collection program. It, it actually goes all the way back to 9-11 and the president's surveillance program. I mean, this is the current incarnation of what insiders call basket two uh, of the three baskets of collection that President George W. Bush ordered on presidential authority after 9-11. In 2006, it was brought under the auspices of the FISA court. It was fully briefed to the relevant committees of Congress. And in fact, a briefing on it was offered to everybody in Congress. But when it was publicly outed in 2013 by Edward Snowden, the result two years later was the USA Freedom Act called Detail Records Program. Um, and without getting too deep into the weeds, which it would be easy to do, um, <laughs> from a privacy standpoint, this called Detail Record or CDR program results in NSA holding a lot less data, like a lot less data than it did in the era of bulk collection of metadata, which preceded the CDR program. Uh, today, under this program, the phone companies effectively are running the federated databases that the NSA can query. But the CDR program enshrined by the Freedom Act is much more complex and expensive, both legally and technically, uh, than the predecessor, and it failed. So one lesson for this is complexity breeds error. And we have to keep that in mind when we're searching for compromises. The big question going forward is whether NSA is going to seek to renew it or give it up, as General Nakasone apparently said. They're thinking about it. I've been suggesting they might let it go since the summer of 2018 uh, in a Lawfare blog post. And the recent reporting suggests that's more likely the case. I'm sure some people in the government are saying, OK, great, if we have to give this away, what can we trade for it? And one answer would be they should seek some concession in the form of broader collection authority elsewhere. That sounds good in theory, but I think it's pretty hard to accomplish in practice. But what I think NSA has to do here, and this is my last point on this, mm -hmm. is to explain to people, if it decides to let this go, that it can, in fact, restrain itself at times, that it does not always go to the maximum of its legal authority. And if you put this event together, if they do let it go, with the abandonment of the upstream about collection from April 2017, you've got two strong data points to support this idea that NSA is capable of thoughtful judgment and isn't just leaning all the way into every authority, which is a common belief in the academic and civil liberties community. So. Right now, I think it's absolutely critical for NSA's mission that it establish greater credibility and build support with wider audiences. And so if they conclude operationally that the right thing to do is to let this go uh, and let it expire at the end of the year, then they should be sure to extract from that the appropriate narrative advantage, as it were, in telling people how they are capable of you know, occasional thoughtful self-restraint. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say on that point that the the incident last summer that you referred to where NSA not only voluntarily disclosed publicly that there had been an error, uh, it sounds like on the telephone company's part in terms mm -hmm. of the information shared with NSA, uh, but then they voluntarily decided to rectify that uh, error by deleting the relevant records, actually all of the records, as you said. That combined with their uh, decision on the upstream about collection um, and, uh, frankly, what General Nakasone said earlier or last week, I think they they do uh, and they are trying to establish that record of credibility and thoughtfulness that does seem to be um, uh, an important part of uh, their own mission and uh, pushing back on some of the more extreme versions of what, what the NSA may be all about. Right. 
but let's talk about the the renewal that's going to happen at the end of this year. So that's the the authority that underlies this particular program um, is set to expire at the end of 2019, as you said. There are some other authorities that are also up for renewal or expiration. What would you say, David, about those authorities and how people might think about both the other uses of 215 and the other authorities on the table? Should they, Is it fair to think of these all in a single basket, or should they really be thought of as uh, different animals? And how would you kind of categorize them uh, based on what you know at this point? Well, I think they, they should and need to be parsed. Uh, and, you know, the fact that, that these three authorities, I believe, are all coming due at the end of the year, it doesn't mean that they're actually related in any analytic or operational fashion. The other two authorities being, I believe, roving surveillance, which allows the government to follow somebody if they move from phone to phone, say if they're buying burner cell phones and banding them quickly, uh, and the so-called lone wolf authority that allows the government to do traditional FISA surveillance on a non-U.S. person who's an international terrorist but isn't, at least as far as the evidence shows, affiliated with any larger group of terrorists. I, I think first the, the CDR program, if they let it go, you know, could be jettisoned. The rest of the USA Freedom Act, including its prohibitions on bulk collection in the context of national security letters, by way of example, you know, would probably be retained. It's hard to imagine Congress jettisoning the entire legislation and still harder to believe that they would let 215 roll back all the way to its pre-Patriot Act form, in which it applied only to four different kinds of business records rather than the broader category of tangible things that it now covers. So I, I doubt very much that they will roll it all the way back, but they may surgically excise this called detail records program that replaced the prior program of bulk collection. I think roving surveillance is a well-established concept in the criminal wiretapping context. That was where it was first adopted in what people refer to as Title III or the Wiretap Act. Uh, which is a 1968 piece of legislation. Roving wasn't added in 68. It was not added to later, but roving authority existed there before it existed on the FISA side. And I find it hard to believe Congress would jettison that authority rather than renewing it. As to the lone wolf, on the one hand, people say it's not used, therefore it's not needed. On the other hand, I think people say it's not used, so it's not a problem. But if it right. is needed, it will be <laughs> really needed. Um, and I suspect that one will get by as well. But, you know, you can see the arguments lining up pro and con on on the lone wolf thing. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, well, let's shift gears to uh, what may be rare these days, and it seems to be a new area of bipartisan consensus. And this is talking tough on some of the country's largest and most profitable technology companies. So last week at the South by Southwest conference in Austin uh, and for Senator Warren before that in New York, two prominent Democratic presidential candidates, Senators Warren and Klobuchar, uh, called for a revival of aggressive antitrust enforcement aimed at big tech technology companies. So we had Senator Warren unveiling a plan to require the breakup of platform utilities she, which she would define as large internet companies that run their own marketplaces, uh, they would be prohibited from competing in those marketplaces. And a number of other presidential hopefuls chimed in, 
uh, with Senator Klobuchar saying she would favor supercharging the enforcement authorities at DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission who focus on uh, civil antitrust and criminal antitrust enforcement. Um, so, David, what do you think here? Are we entering a new era of mult- muscular antitrust enforcement? Well, it's, uh, I, I think that's a long way off. I mean, I, I look at this also in two contexts, one broad, one narrow. Um, and this is subject to the caveat you mentioned at the top of the story about clients and so forth. But um, my own view is, you know, on the one hand, broadly speaking, this is how some members of the Democratic Party are pushing to the left and playing to the left rather than the center. I, I sort of think this is the biggest issue, big issue facing the Democrats right now, which is how do they respond to President Trump and the shift in the Republican Party? Do they play to the center or do they play to their base? And taking this hard line on monopoly and antitrust enforcement, I think, is designed to appeal to and and, and reflect, I don't mean to suggest it's totally cynical or anything, but to reflect the preferences of people on the Democratic base. I think Klobuchar's description of more aggressive FTC enforcement is probably the more likely outcome. But there's also a, a narrower political lens that is worth looking at, which concerns Silicon Valley in particular. I mean, it really did enjoy a very close uh, relationship and association with the Obama administration, both in terms of policy and personnel. And of course, the two are, are often linked. Um, and in some ways, the you know, disclosures of Edward Snowden and the Obama administration's very deliberate shift to focus on privacy rather than security in the aftermath of that brought the two closer together. In other ways, it created rifts with the IC and law enforcement. But at the policymaking level, I think there was a very close association. In the Trump era, uh, obviously, things are more complex, less certain. We have Russian election interference and a lot of other developments that have really changed. And it's a much less favorable, more uncertain, complex environment for Silicon Valley. I think there are a range of possible responses to this from them and from the politicians. And it's just going to play out with people making choices about whether they're going to seek antitrust authority and push that, whether they're going to seek fair trade-based authority like FTC or DOJ enforcement, and how are the companies going to respond? Are they going to try to build bridges, or are they going to go harder still on the civil liberties line and anti-government line that they pursued after 2013? We just don't know yet, Mm -hmm. and it would be very interesting to see how the various players move the pieces around on the board over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, along those lines. So, Maury, we've had on the on the Trump administration side recent interviews with the the newish FTC commissioner Joseph Simons, uh, who is not a privacy guru by any means, but he has acknowledged the need, or at least uh, thinks there is a need for new authority for the FTC to uh, do a better job of monitoring data privacy policies of tech companies and others. So as, is this a real development? Is this a punt? How, how do you see this? Well, I, have to, I think we have to wait and see, but it, it's certainly interesting. You know, David was just saying um, some of the Democratic candidates are playing to the left. This is uh, a Republican, Trump-appointed head of the FTC playing to the center. The FTC has been the biggest enforcer of privacy obligations in the United States, not as aggressive, certainly, as data protection authorities here in Europe. And it's used its general authority under the FTC Act um, to police deceptive business practices. That's the authority that is at issue in the big 
case that's pending against Facebook. But what Commissioner Simons is asking for is um, a broader authority to directly have civil direct civil penalty authority for privacy violations. That would be pretty interesting. That's a lot um, more like what we have in Europe. I doubt it's going to get to the level of GDPR where we can find people for percent of global turnover. But that authority would allow the FTC to get a lot more aggressive about privacy enforcement, whether there's um, will to do so in a Republican um, controlled FTC, I think remains to be seen. <laughs> And I could I could see our our uh, our normal host, Mr. Baker, just scowling as we were talking about increased privacy authorities. But this it's interesting to see this playing out on on both the left and and the right in the Trump administration. You also have some Republican uh, freshmen in Congress who are talking who are criticizing the FTC for not doing enough uh, to enforce uh, privacy rules already under their existing authorities, uh, suggesting they've just chosen to go soft. Uh, so I, I agree. This seems like an area where um, it, it remains to be seen what exactly will happen, but it's hard to kind of draw the normal political landscape in, in uh, figuring out the positions here. Yeah, absolutely. Now, on, on your side of the Atlantic, Maury, so not to be outdone, uh, of course, the, the French have their own proposal to, uh, in the views of some target big tech and other big American uh, and other companies, uh, so this is the, the French finance minister announced last week he's supporting a law uh, that would propose a new tax in this area. Can you can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, it would be a three percent tax on the revenue of 30 large Internet businesses. Not surprisingly, almost none of them are French. I think one is French. <laughs> uh, most of them are American. There's a few Chinese, German, British. You know, this is comes out of the Gilets Jaunes Yellow Vest protest, which had been seismic politically in France. It was one of the demands of the protesters that Internet businesses pay more tax. And this is a rather direct response. Three percent tax on revenue is very large. I don't think it's going to uh, be sufficient to cause Internet companies to withdraw from France if it passes. But uh, it will make France an increasingly inhospitable environment for these businesses and probably perpetuate the situation where most of the large internet businesses who are subject to the tax are not French. So as we often say on this podcast, you know, this kind of regular regulatory initiative in Europe tends to be short-sighted in terms of um, the overall economy if you're trying to promote internet business. Um, and is this a real proposal? Is there, is, is there a chance that this will actually pass? Is this a political statement? What do you think? Well, it's definitely a political statement. I am not close enough to French politics to say whether it's real. But my overall sense is these proposals to tax global Internet companies have been, you know, they've been mooted uh, extensively. There aren't any big ones yet, but I think at some point it's going to, I think there's some country, some significant country is going to adopt one at some point, And it wouldn't surprise me if France is the first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm sorry, you didn't mention it, Brian, but I just have to say, I also am hearing and seeing in my mind the face and the words of Stuart Baker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just feel like the listening audience should just at this point pause, reflect, and imagine Stuart making a number of cynical uh, and harsh comments about the French so that they get the full effect of yes. the podcast, even in his absence. Yes. 
the, the yeah. French, the EU, and uh, data privacy, three of his right. favorite topics. That would be really triggered by, <laughs> by and, and, and David, in Stuart's absence, I probably should have tried to channel him more as the primary <laughs> commenter on this, but it's almost impossible for me to it's do so. Hard. Stuart is a unique, uh, unique entity, so, but uh, people should imagine. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so if if this is a uh, an edited version of the podcast, it appears once Stuart comes back late this week. Uh, you know, we'll, you, you'll understand why. So, what 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 has big tech done this week itself? So there's been a lot of news about uh, an announcement by Facebook that they are pivoting towards a secure messaging approach as a policy matter. Um, I wanted to focus on um, maybe a less reported legal uh, matter. Uh, that at least I find interesting, which is a lawsuit that Facebook filed uh, out on the West Coast, David, against a number of Chinese companies with the idea of, of helping to thwart the setting up and selling of fake Facebook and Instagram accounts. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Subject to the same client caveats. I mean, this is a good action, I think. Uh, these companies, Facebook and the others, obviously have an interest in keeping their platforms clean, um, as it were. I mean, their brand is, is built in large part on trust and safety for users, and it hurts them. Uh, and it hurts their users if the platform is misused, whether that's for commercial fraud, uh, trademark fraud, which appears to be the case here, and also, frankly, for political abuse. Um, and so we know that foreign companies like this one, I guess, are, um, if you believe the lawsuit anyway, are engaged in that kind of commercial uh, misbehavior. And we know from the special counsel's indictment, by way of example only, that uh, foreign governments and government-affiliated entities abroad, like the Internet Research Agency, are you know, committing fraud on social media platforms uh, to advance various sociopolitical uh, and geopolitical uh, aims. Uh, so, you know, we, they need to get rid of the abusers, commercial or political, and I think this is a good step towards doing that. It's a necessary step, and uh, you know it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But I think it should send some kind of a message that there is, you know, not going to be endless tolerance for this kind of misuse of these platforms. Just looking at some of the the news stories that came out about when this lawsuit was filed. Uh, so there's several quotes from the company and its counsel. But no quotes from the defendants. The defendants could not be reached for comment. It's yeah, not well, known who represent the defendants. It has a little bit of the feel of the indictment of the Chinese government officials in in a way, I, I, in that sense. Or, or is this a, a lawsuit that's – should we see an outcome? Should we see an actual defense? Or is this more of a, a statement lawsuit in, in, in your view? You know, I, I can't tell. I don't know. I don't know of any evidence of connection to any governmental entity behind this the way there was in the Internet Research Agency. So I, I sort of don't want to yeah, fair enough. To say that. Um, and I don't know whether these defendants are just total fly by night fraudster scam artists who will default. Uh, and, you know, then it'll just be a challenge of collecting on the judgment or whether they may have some more substantive defenses to offer. I, I have. I don't know that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if they're sort of picking the strongest cases to sort of start this initiative and these folks never show up. But but you don't know, uh, I guess, I don't know, uh, without having really researched the companies in the first instance, as I'm sure Facebook did before filing. Yes. Yeah. No, fair, fair points. 
Maury, we're going to use this opportunity with Stuart's absence to go back to a couple of topics that he probably uh, would care to do without, which is uh, an announcement by President Macron calling for the creation of a European agency for the protection of democracies uh, to protect elections against cyber attacks. So can you can you tell us a little bit about this announcement and, and what it might mean? Well, this, I do think, is political grandstanding. I mean, it's also related to the Yellow Vest protests. Um, Macron did a cons- one day after this uh, 3% tax was announced that we talked about, Macron did a series of coordinated op-eds around European newspapers, including The Guardian here in the UK, and calling for various uh, rallying around Europe in the era of Brexit and making a number of policy proposals. One of these is the European Agency for Protection of Democracies. Uh, I I just don't see that happening. Um, The French may be able to decide to adopt the tax themselves, but a newer European agency. We've got the European Network Information Security Agency here in Europe, and if the idea is to supply cyber attack defense capabilities across Europe, that's a task that could easily be assigned to ENISA, which I just mentioned. So while there are serious concerns about election tampering, I think this one's political grandstanding. Yeah, it's and speaking of not quite political grandstanding, um, I think you have similar uh, kind of gut reactions in the United States amongst politicians, all of whom can agree that protecting democracy and elections against cyber attacks is important, but it's kind of hard to figure out what what policy tools are needed to address that. Um, we had Chris Coons and Cory Gardner, a Democrat from Delaware and Republican from Colorado, reintroduce a law, uh, a probably well-intentioned law, uh, about 10 days ago, the Cyber Deterrence and Response Act, which would uh, impose economic sanctions against all entities and persons responsible or complicit in malicious cyber activities aimed against the United States. So kind of a a motherhood and apple pie uh, sanctions law. It's been introduced before. It didn't pass in the last Congress. It's already been introduced in the House as well. Not clear to me that this is an area where the Trump administration or the executive branch actually needs additional authority. Uh, The Trump administration has already put in place a sanctions framework designed to deter deter malicious cyber activity. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if something like this eventually made it through the legislative process for, for some of the same reason. So Maury conducted an interview this week with James Griffith uh, over in our London office. James is a journalist. He's based in Hong Kong, and he's the author of the new book, The Great Firewall of China. Uh, let's turn to James's interview or Maury's interview with James now. So I'm here with journalist James Griffith, the author of The Great Firewall of China. Welcome, James. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for coming in to join us in our London studio today, a remote recording of the uh, Steph Joe Johnson Cyberlaw podcast interview. I I really enjoyed reading your book. Uh, How long have you been working on it? Uh, The book's been a process of about two years of kind of reporting and researching and writing. Um, and then kind of really wrapped up in the last in the kind of six months leading up to finishing it, you know, really intensive reporting and writing in Asia. Yeah. You have a lot of really interesting stories of censorship in the book, both in China and in some other countries. I, I imagine you talk to a lot of people. Did you need to obfuscate their identities? There's some people whose names are in the book. Yeah, um, some people are uh, kind of very willing to be, you know, on the record and, and, you know, real credit to them that they're happy to kind of 
speak openly about this, but you know, as you'd imagine with this type of topic, a lot of people don't want that. Um, there's a few things in the notes that kind of mentions who uses a pseudonym. The kind of biggest one is Bajit Sao, who's a Chinese uh, political cartoonist and distant um, kind of writer and activist, and obviously he's only ever referred to as Bajit Sao through the book, which is a, a pseudonym that he uses for his art. Yeah, and you allude to that in the book, your yeah. conversation with him in Australia, where some reticence by him to give away any information that would indicate who he yeah. really is. Yeah, and, and he, I mean, he even does performances where he, he wears masks through all his performances and stuff, and he's kind of, yeah, very, very anonymous. Yeah, so interesting. So I, I pay a fair amount of attention to China and have thought about the Great Firewall, and I, I think until I read your book, I envisioned the firewall as kind of a firewall, a big set of infrastructure, not, not like you'd have at home. But I realized from reading the book, and maybe I don't know whether you'll agree with this, that there's like several different big pieces of infrastructure. And the five that I wrote down were, you know, the firewall infrastructure, the online content rules, some uh, domestic propaganda, some hacking, and then police and enforcement work to go after people that are maybe not liked by the government for, for what they said. Um, so your book says a lot about these. Can you say something about the operational apparatus behind these? It must take a lot of people to run all these activities. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we don't know an awful lot, a lot about the kind of the bureaucratic level at the government side, but we know that within kind of private companies that, you know, we're into the kind of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who work in, you know, what can broadly be kind of called censorship, as if that's kind of people working within businesses like Weibo, which is kind of Chinese version of Twitter, you know, to monitor posts and censor them and block things and, you know, across a, you know, a huge swap of industries, people working in these roles. So it's, it's, it's a huge operation and that's even, you know, that's only seen the public bit that we know about, let alone the kind of security apparatus, which is much more kind of obfuscated and harder to, to ascertain. I, I imagine it's, it's hard to find people in the Chinese government who will talk about how these things work, presumably. Uh, it's hard to find people that talk about it, but they actually, they are reasonably open in terms of kind of writing about it and, and justifying the, you know, the kind of thinking behind the firewall and the, the politics behind the censorship, so, so the, the, the doctrine of cyber sovereignty, which is the, the kind of, you know, underlying political thought behind behind this, is fairly well kind of described in, in um, party journals and party think tanks will discuss this stuff. But yeah, if you try and ask someone, can we have an interview about censorship, that, uh, quickly gets shut down. Yeah, that's one of the, I've heard that the censors, there's two topics that they really don't like, which is collective action and criticism of the censors. Yeah. So maybe, I, I've read anecdotally that these tens of thousands of censorship jobs you refer to um, are quite sought after these days in China. Have you heard the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's kind of a tech job. You know, most of these firms are, uh, you know, the social media firms, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, it's it's a bit like working in Silicon Valley at a fairly low level, but, you know, they're, they're you know, reasonably nice companies to work for, middle class salary, um, and, and you know, possibly a lot of people go into them not knowing exactly what they'll do, you know, there was a very a fascinating piece in the New York Times recently that had a, had a profile that kind of outsourcing firm that does um, a lot of censorship for smaller internet companies because they don't can't afford to employ legions of censors themselves, they outsource this firm which helps them. And they have to conduct training sessions for the kind of millennial employees that come in because in order to censor a lot of the stuff you do actually have to know the history that you're trying to wipe out. If you don't know what, what happened in Tiananmen, you you won't 
notice any references, let alone you know kind of secret references. So they have to give them training sessions and then show them. So you know, I, I can imagine for certain type of people, you know, even if you don't stay in it for very long, it's probably quite attractive to just go in, see what it's like, learn all this stuff, and then you know maybe leave or maybe stay there and enjoy the salary to censor stuff. It also calls to mind like an Edward Snowden for uh, kind of thing where somebody goes in to learn about. Uh, you know what's going on. We haven't had the Edward Snowden events in China, but if, if there was an Edward Snowden in China, I'm sure my my contact details will be at the bottom of the podcast. You can feel free to get in touch. Right. Yeah, right. Um, so t- talking again about the personnel and going to the top of it, you say a fair amount about Lu Wei, who runs the censorship apparatus. You also briefly mentioned Fang uh, Bingxing, who you say is widely acknowledged and loathed as the architect of the Great Firewall. Can you tell us some more about Mr. Lu and Mr. Fang? Yeah, so these both very interesting figures. They, they, you know, Lu Wei kind of replaced Fan Binxing as the kind of main, you know, avatar of the firewalls that were. Fan Binxing, we don't know super a lot about exactly what he did, but he was kind of talked, discussed in state media as, as the, you know, the architect of the firewall, the father of the Great Firewall, and, and he used to, for a very long time, um, before he retired, would would speak quite, you know persuasively and, and openly about the firewall and the thinking behind it and you know that brought him a great deal of attention. There was one incident where he was giving a talk in China and, and someone threw a shoe at him from the audience. And and he also had the shoes of George Bush. Yes, exactly, yeah. And and also I mean he he, he was essentially forced off Weibo at some point. Oh no, so they had to um they they blocked so his his wayboard they, they restricted the ability to post comments on it because every single comment was so abusive. <laughs> He just would have a post and everything underneath it would be pure abuse, so they stopped people being able to do that. Um, but in kind of the past, I mean, basically since 2012 when Xi Jinping um, came to power, Liu Wei uh, kind of ascended alongside him and, and was until until very recently the, the top censor in China and has now had a rather spectacular downfall um, due to corruption investigations and, and alleged abuses of power, um, which is kind of quite common for a lot of fast rising Chinese officials, but um, you know, Liu Wei was by far the kind of even more so, much more so than Fang was the real avatar of the firewall. He's the person who went and met with people like Mark Zuckerberg and he would go to international conferences and, and, and he's the, you know, a very strong public speaker and you know very kind of self confident in a way that a lot of other um, sometimes Chinese officials are a bit embarrassed about the censorship and Liu Wei was never never embarrassed and was very kind of vehement in promoting the thinking behind it. Who is the new Liu Wei with this downfall, or is there a new one? There isn't a new one in the same sense that there isn't that kind of... I think there is maybe a desire not to have one, because when Liu kind of was prosecuted, there there was this discussion of, um, you know, he kind of was using his influence to to gain advantages, and I think one of the reasons he was able to do that is because he was such a public figure, and and so now um, his replacement is uh, replacements, are more kind of low key and aren't, you know, are kind of taking a step back and, and not, you know, not threatening to overshadow Xi Jinping. Interesting. So, moving to some specific instances you talk about, you write at length about the aggressive censorship in Xinjiang, including some complete shutdowns of the internet on a couple of occasions. The BBC here in the UK did a report last autumn about large re education schools, which are effectively, they say, internment camps in Xinjiang. And it seems to me the, the physical and online controls there are obviously linked. Can can you speak some, in more detail about those linkages? Yeah. Um, so 
so in the book they talk about the uh, 2009 um, protests and riots in, in, in Urumqi and in Xinjiang and, and post-2009 that there, there was there is a, a 12 month long or 10 month long sorry um, internet shutdown in all of Xinjiang and that is a real turning point for how the internet was, was treated there it, you know it was never really it was never particularly open in Xinjiang but, but once the shutdown happened obviously that was completely you're not even able to use it for almost a year and then afterwards um, it was in, incredibly intensely censored so everything to do with Uyghur identity or Uyghur language or you know a lot of things that previously would be kind of seen as not if not exactly apolitical, then at least not too political, became associated with sectorism and were just consensus off the bat. And and you've seen that kind of tightening of control uh, of Uyghurs, how they behave online, has also been reflected in how their how their lives have been have been controlled in Xinjiang itself and day to day. So you see a ramping up of the securitization of the province and of um, kind of spread of checkpoints a lot of the time that where people are inspected and that goes into the technology side as well because not only are, you know not not only are you, are you is your ID checked but uh, oftentimes nowadays someone will take your phone out and will go through your phone and you know not just look at your text messages but also kind of look and see what apps you have on your phone if you have anything that like looks like a VPN or some other way of getting around the firewall there have been reports of people being told to download a specific app which then actively monitors how they how they use their phone and reports back to the security services. So it's it's really hand in hand this um, you know this this kind of ground level oppression, ground level controls of, of things like the camps and the you know, checkpoints and stuff, and the technological side of it, of both censorship and surveillance. So it sounds like the the both online and um, and physical controls have increased significantly in Xinjiang in the last decade or so, uh, because what what we've heard about is the adjacent province, of course, Tibet or Xinjiang, mm -hmm. as the Chinese call it. I've heard for long a lot more about what's happening there, but it sounds like that model that has been applied in Tibet is extended over the last decade to uh, Xinjiang as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even you can see that there are Communist Party officials in common moving around between these provinces and, and you know, taking tactics that worked in Tibet, in Tibet rather, and took them to Xinjiang applied them in Xinjiang. The, the situation in Xinjiang is, is, seems to be worse at the moment. Um, there are kind of very reasons that, that Tibet was cracked down on quite heavily in the past and that, that potentially the paranoia the Communist Party has over, over Xinjiang and, and over centrism and independent movement there is maybe stronger and that's led to a kind of more sustained crackdown in recent years. There is this kind of general suspicion of of Islam, uh, because you know Tibetan Buddhism is, is at least a kind of neighbouring, you know, Asian religion, and that, that whereas Islam is a kind of uh, how the Communist Party would see it is a foreign one, and and they are much more suspicious of, seem to be more suspicious of Muslims than they would be of Tibetan Buddhists, so long as the Tibetan Buddhists don't talk about the Dalai Lama. Yeah. So you also write about the adoption of Chinese censorship uh, technology in Russia and in Uganda. Where else is is this? Are we going to see this all over the world? Uh, I mean, we, we we kind of are, yeah. Um, you know, China has been very very active um, in terms of exporting um, both technology for you know uh, kind of surveillance at a, at a you know at a connection level and routers and, and and other other tools they use this, but they're also they've done uh, training sessions. So occasionally you'll see um, in, in the book I talk about um, Ugandan officials going to Beijing 
to consult on, you know, what do we do, how do we control this thing, what, what do we need to introduce? Um, and then, you know, there are also examples of uh, Vietnam recently passed a cybersecurity bill, which is very, very similar to um, China's cybersecurity bill and comes after a training session is done for Vietnamese officials. Um, so, you know, and then Russia is, is kind of a big part of the book and is a, is a very good example of an internet that was, and perhaps it's difficult to imagine nowadays because we hear about Russia being more controlled, but was very, very open and very kind of free and, you know, freewheeling and, you know, they, there's a couple of quotes you can find in the past where, you know, these internet entrepreneurs talk about how it's kind of more capitalist than the internet in the West and you're kind of able to do anything. And that's really been um, kind of reined in. And then in the past five, two or three years, that has, you know, really shifted towards the Chinese model. Um, so last week there was uh, several bills in the Duma on, that are really kind of pushing towards the Chinese model, pushing towards kind of cyber sovereignty of, you know, uh, securing the borders around the Russian internet, uh, criminalizing a lot of um, dissent, and there was a bill about uh, not being permitted to insult the government and government officials, and it's defined in an incredibly broad sense. And so there's been this real kind of shift towards the Chinese model. We talked a lot about um, the interaction between legal change and technology on the Cyber Law Podcast, and your comments on this bring it home for me in a, in a way that I haven't, the, the connection is very direct, mm. um, which I guess I should have realized more uh, obviously, but uh, interesting, I, I've been paying attention to that Vietnam law, and it's interesting to think that that could be linked to more technical controls mm. coming along. And, and you see a lot of these, um, both Russia and China and we, we, other countries struggle to, to, both Russia and China have moved towards um, pushing companies to base their servers in the country. And and that's been a big shift because obviously there are, opens up to surveillance issues. If, if, you know, if Apple or if another company has its service based in China, there are, you know, potential surveillance concerns due to that. And uh, Russia and China have been the ones leading this, but the, Partly because you know they have the economic weight that they can kind of can pressure these foreign companies, but we are seeing other other countries. So that's part of the Vietnam uh, cybersecurity law is they want people to base their service in Vietnam, and you know that's probably something we're going to see more and more countries try and push for to, to you know localize data in, in their countries. So coming back to China, you mentioned the interaction between WeChat surveillance and these. China's social credit system, about which you quote journalist Mara Fistendahl, who spoke about the social credit system on this podcast, it seemed to me that the social credit system is a really important part, a crucial part of how the Chinese Communist Party is solving its biggest problem, which is allowing increased economic flexibility while maintaining social control. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of the social credit system is still kind of largely theoretical, and we haven't seen how it will work in practice, and perhaps it won't be as effective as, the, as, as they seem to hope. But you know, seeing the the you know what has been talked about um, already and what's been proposed is you know is, is pretty concerning. You know, both from a kind of control level, from a surveillance level. Um, you know, it, it basically, in terms of censorship, it. it tilted over from a top-down censorship model, which is largely what we have at the moment, to I think something we're going to see much more self-censorship because this system of control is there. That the risks of the risks of, of, of you know pushing the buttons are so much so much higher than they would be in the past that you just don't you don't try it. You don't post something that you're not 100% sure isn't going to get you in trouble because 
you know, you don't want to lose, you don't want to lower your social credit score, you don't want to potentially get a call from the police because you dropped 10 points or something like that. Yeah, and I suppose we should say for those who haven't listened to the previous podcast or yet read the book, which isn't out, uh, that the social credit system does things, um, everybody in China has a score and people who don't have a high enough score can't take plane flights or can't take train ride, high-speed trains and things like that or lose other rights. Yeah, and that, that, I mean that's that's what's theorised and that has been tested in a couple of um, a couple of pilot programs. And, and what's you know what's really concerning and what, why I think this would lead to a lot of self censorship is, is that it's not just um, potentially your own score that you affect. Um, if you see some of the proposals, it, it could be that association with people with very low scores could could affect your score. And so you know my being a kind of precocious you know, millennial and posting dangerous things online, if that drives my, my score down, potentially that's also going to affect my parents' score, and will that damage my father's business, and you know, there are all kinds of potential repercussions that make it so much harder, or so much riskier to, to, to do anything really that isn't, you know, kind of, isn't guaranteed to be, to met, be met with approval by the government. Uh, so, jumping on to the, the devil's advocate side, you know, the Chinese or and I'm a little bit sympathetic to this sometimes. I do some work in China. It's a well-functioning country, despite some recent um, economic questions about its markets. Um, the Chinese are, are quick to point out these days that Internet freedom is having un unfortunate side effects in Western democracies. Online disinformation, social conflict, election manipulation. Here in Europe, you know, in the U.S. we have the First Amendment. Here in Europe... Um, there's a lot of talk of harm space regulation of, of the internet worries about we will regulate speech to deal with these things. So do these voices from very different perspectives have a point that control of online content is actually required for social stability? Yeah, and I, you know, there is a point. Um, you know, I think a lot of times when China makes these arguments that they, you know, there, there is some validity to them, right? That they, they, you know, when they say, you know, things like fake news and, and interference aren't too much of a problem in China. They're right to a certain extent because they control all of the news and they control what can be done. You know, and, and I think part of the problem is, and I talk about this in the book, is that we're, we're, we, we've got this tension between these kind of two models of the internet and, and you know, one of them is the Chinese model which is hyper-controlled and, and, you know, where, which is very restricted and has this top-down censorship and top-down monitoring. And the other is the kind of model which I don't think anyone would really think particularly exists anymore, but the, the you know, information wants to be free, kind of, you know, ultra-libertarian model that was originally pushed by Silicon Valley, kind of in the, you know, early days of the internet as technology. But, and while I don't think anyone particularly argues that that's what exists at the moment, the, the kind of ethos behind it and the thinking behind it is still really, really influential, I think, and that, that's kind of stopped a lot of, especially in the US, has stopped government regulation of these, um, of the industry for many, many years, and, and, and you know, the industry is often pushed back whenever there's attempts to rein them in and screen censorship and screen control. And now we're in a kind of situation where, you know, in some situations, it's become so dire that, that people are people are now, you know, ordinary people and voters are screaming, "Let's control this!" But you know, you know, need to fix this. And I'm not sure. Lots of people in industry and in government are, are particularly kind of aware of how to do it, or even you know, you know, aren't they don't really have any idea what to do? It seems uh, because I because I think we've just avoided thinking about this for so long. We've, we've just let it kind of have so much freedom that we don't know how to how to rein it in anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, you asked this question at, at the end of the book, I know that in a very pointed way. The, the free market, you know, sort of saying we need to reject both the Chinese-style censorship and the free market approach, which, you know, you say maybe it doesn't fully exist anymore. Shoshana Zuboff has just come out with her book about surveillance mm -hmm. capitalism, which seems to be the phrase on everybody's lips these days. And maybe that's the, the natural um, outcome of freedom on the Internet. And you write, and I'm quoting, most likely a new user-focused, democratic, and transparent internet will have to be built from the ground up, unquote. That's a very ambitious prescription to say <laughs> we're going we're to build a new internet. But it, it, assuming that you believe what you wrote there, what practical steps will, would take us down that course? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, one of the advances of being a journalist rather than a, than, a, than a thinker and academic is that you can kind of point to problems and not necessarily have a particularly good solution to them. But, you know, I, I, I do think something in that direction would have to be done. You know, the problem with the current model often is that, you know, when we are faced with problems like, you know, any given problem with Facebook, for example, people say, well, you know, it's a free market, talk, you know, talk with your wallet, go somewhere else. Where else do you go? What is, what is the competitor to Facebook that still lets me connect with my, my family and my friends and share photos and things? You know, these things are so enmeshed in our lives that there isn't particularly that ability to, you know, exercise influence within a market. You know, there was a very good series on Gizmodo recently where um, Kashmir Hill tried to live without various things. So she tried to live without Facebook, live without Google, live without Amazon, and, and particularly the last two, just, just showing how nearly impossible that is to do as an ordinary consumer. You, you basically have to, you basically can't interact online with a lot of things because of how enmeshed these companies are. And, and so, so we need to have some other way that users can affect change within these companies and influence these companies because the the old model or the, or the you know theorized model of that the people will be able to influence it through you know spending through market action doesn't seem to be working and doesn't seem to even be happening. So you know and I don't you know hold my hands up I don't admit, I, I don't particularly have an idea of how to do this, but but it's clear that that we need to empower users and that and that's what's really concerning in in a lot of the ways these companies seem to be reacting to this pressure is not in necessarily in a way that empowers users. It's in a way that kind of pleases politicians and, and maybe gets the media off their back for a, for a few weeks, but isn't necessarily in a way that benefits how ordinary people react, uh, interact with the platform. Yeah, so besides being a lawyer here at Steptoe, I'm a tech investor myself, so I pay attention to developments in these areas. I've noticed a couple of projects that are trying to do this kind mm -hmm. of thing, whether there'll be a commercial success or not, I don't know. But Tim Berners-Lee, who's known for creating the World Wide Web, um, has a, a solid project, which is to allow social applications where users retain their data, sort of a technical impl uh, implementation of self-sovereign identity. Mm. A friend of mine here in London has founded a social network called Lyra that's intended to enable person-to-person text-based communications. Um, are th is this the kind of thing you have in mind when you say that uh, I don't want to pin you down on the new internet <laughs> thing, but are you thinking part of it could be new applications like that? Yeah, but, but, you know, I, I think in order for any of these things to have success, that there probably is going to have to be, you know, some kind of government intervention to, I mean, probably to break up a lot of these companies. You, you know, there there is movement to, to do that in the U.S. I think Elizabeth Warren has come out and, and talked that's been one of her kind of platforms in terms of going into 2020 is to break up 
um, Amazon, Google, and things. And you know, and why why that might need to be the case is that because just you know, I think you can talk to anyone that work, operates in this sphere. You know, the idea of trying to compete with these companies is so you know mind-boggling because they you know they aren't they aren't just the 200-pound gorilla in the room. They're you know that times a thousand. You know, it's just and they can buy you for a lot of money. They can buy you, yeah, and they can and if they can't buy you, they can just you know as as Facebook has done with many of its competitors, if they can't buy you, they can launch a competing product and you know sink you. Mm-hmm. So. I understand you're based in Hong Kong. You're here in London on tour uh, to promote the book, yes. among other things. Um, we'd like to give our guests a chance to mention future speaking engagements and, and, this, and similar. Is there anything you'd like to mention about where our listeners can hear more from you in the near future? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm speaking at um, the Frontline Club on uh, Wednesday, the 13th of March. And um, I'm also speaking at um, Chatham House on uh, Thursday this week. Um, and then if you're in Hong Kong, I'm, I'm speaking at the Foreign Correspondence Club on Tuesday, the 19th of March as well. And then I'll also be in, um, if you have listeners in Australia, I'll be in Australia um, in April, I think, for a tour there. Super. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, the book is The Great Firewall of China by James Griffith. I'm sure you'd like it if you went out there and buy a copy. And with that, I'll turn it back over to the team in D.C. So thank you to James Griffith, to Maury Shank, to David Chris. This has been episode 254 of the Cyberlaw podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, suggest an interview guest, and we'll send you a highly coveted Cyberlaw podcast mug if they come on the show. Uh, second, please do send your comments, your questions, and your suggestions uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. You can follow Stuart on Twitter uh, at Stuart Baker for updates and stories that we may cover each week. Uh, send in your own thoughts on stories that we should cover. Uh, we, we very much welcome those suggestions. Um, and rate the show and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a number of really good upcoming guests. We have Amy Ziegert from Stanford's Hoover Institution. We've got Adam Segal from the Council on Foreign Relations. And we've got Elsa Knia from the Center for New American Security. And finally, I want to thank Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, the audio engineer, Michael Beaver, the intern. Um, and I'm Brian Egan, your host. Uh, we hope that you'll join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.